So we put a pause in the book of Exodus. I've had a couple questions like, why are we stopping in Exodus 15? Do you like not like the rest of Exodus or what's the deal? So I should have communicated this better, but we're taking a pause in the book of Exodus and we'll come back to it at some point. But one of the reasons I wanted to pause in Exodus 15 is due to uh, my first pastoral decision, which was to preach through the book of Mark in a year and a half. And I thought, maybe we should, we should preach some shorter sections in order, I was trying to be a good pastor, I, I failed at communicating what it was, but that's sort of the reason why. We're pausing Exodus, we'll come back to it. Uh, we're gonna take a, a, a little snapshot of what deacons are in the book of Acts this week. So you can turn to Acts chapter six, one through seven, and then next week we'll start a series in Colossians. Uh, we'll be looking at Christ who is overall. Um, and so next week, Lord willing, we'll have some bookmarks for you to put in your Bible to start that series. Uh, but Exodus, as you remember, we left the people singing a song on the other side of the Red Sea. And Josh uh, preached to us uh, uh, about what that was, the song towards God and his redemption and his kindness and goodness to those people. And we need to remember that as a kindness and goodness to God's people. But the redemption the history of redemption we see in the Bible doesn't end at the crossing of the Red Sea. It doesn't end at the other side of the Red Sea. It continues on through the Old and New Testament. So this morning, we're going to look at the great story of redemption in the book of Acts. How is the book of Acts, chapter 6, 1 through 7, contributing to the story of redemption? Recently, Bridget and I watched a show called Downton Abbey. Yeah, I got a yay out of that's good. Okay, I thought I would get a boo more likely. It's a, it's a show by Julian Fellows, and one of the members of our church, I think, has called it a gloriously fussy show. Is that the word you use, Trent? Yeah. <laughs> a gloriously fussy show. But it's, it's set in the 1900s about this, this family called uh, the Grantham family. It's really about the, the Earl of Grantham. Uh, it's set in the 1900s, as I, I think I already said. And it's a story about how the family fortune and estate was in jeopardy. So some heirs died in the Titanic. Now what's going to happen? Can it pass through the female line? Or, or you, you, I won't ruin it for you. You should watch it. It's a good show. It's gloriously fussy. But however, the plot structure is interesting. There's the plot about the servants. Well, the, there's a plot about the great family upstairs the Earl of Grantham, Grantham family, and all their pomp and circumstance. And then there's a plot downstairs, the lower story of the servants who serve the great family. There's varying reactions to what service is. You know, Carson, the butler, thinks service is great. And it, 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 actually, he gets a little too much of his identity out of serving the great family. But the you know, even though he was validating his identity, the, the underbutler, the footman, Thomas, saw service as demeaning because it invalidated his identity. And some of the most interesting parts of the show are when the plots intersect. The upstairs meets the downstairs. And you see, you see people conceal their true feelings and somehow they display their true character. And no matter how, how much the upstairs interacts with the downstairs, and no, no matter how much the upstairs family 
treats the downstairs servants nicely, the servants never become the upper class. The class wars have been from time immemorial. Christianity came in when Jesus came and died on the cross and changed the whole paradigm. There's no upstairs family or downstairs servants in the economy of God. There's no upper class or lower class as we kneel at the foot of the cross. There is only unity in Christ. The unity of the church, though, is on a razor's edge. So, Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's holy word. So as we, our church, has, have deacons and are looking to, looking to uh, nominate and implement some more deacons this year, Lord willing, I wanted to, to look at what, a, what service is in the church. And we want to look at it from the, the eyes of Acts, the, the book of Acts, the eyes of Luke, and see how this helps us understands, understand what our Christian ministry is. So let's lay the groundwork for the, the book of Acts, just really quickly, as it continues the story of redemption. This is a story all about how the world got flipped, turned upside down. This is a story about a prince, a king of the universe who came to serve by laying down his life and sending his spirit to abide with his people that they might lay their life down for each other. Jesus Christ came and laid his life down, rose again, ascended to heaven, sent his spirit so that his followers might lay their lives down for him, for his gospel, and for their brothers and sisters. So this story, this book was written by a doctor named Luke. He's an attested doctor who also wrote the book, the gospel of Luke. Acts 1.1 tells us, you just flip a couple pages over, Acts 1.1 tells us the 
why he wrote Luke and why he's reading, writing Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that, the, that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles who he had chosen. So the book of Luke was written so that people might know who Jesus was and what he did, all he began to do and teach. And the book of Acts then is the continuation of that story. It's the continuation of what Jesus began to do and teach, but now it's through his apostles, uh, by his spirit, through his apostles. So you can see that it's titled the Acts of the Apostles. But we should think this is actually Acts of the Holy Spirit done through his apostles, his chosen ones. And the, the thing the apostles were supposed to do was to bear witness to the person and work of Jesus, the Messiah. Acts 1.8 tells us that Jesus himself said, the power will come, let me just read it, so I don't mess it up. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the start of that. Our mission, why we exist as a church is to make disciples of all nations who are in awe of the gospel, embody the gospel, and give their lives away for the gospel. That all started here, right at Pentecost, when Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come upon them, they would go make disciples to all the ends of the earth. And the Holy Spirit did come down in a powerful way. In Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost was an absolute game changer not only for the narrative of scripture, but for, uh, for, we, the, for people, for creation. The Holy Spirit came down in power on that day and has never gone away. He exists in the, in the bodies and spirits of his people and collectively as a church, empowering them to do what he has called them to do to take the to witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What did the witness look like? It looked like preaching and teaching and testifying. If you go through the book of Acts, that is what they're doing. The word is moving and they are preaching and the disciples are multiplying. They're, they're testifying to the resurrection and this was accompanied by many miracles and signs. Acts chapter 5, verse 12 says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together. And, and verse 14 says, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So what's going on in the book of Acts? The word is increasing. The disciples are increasing and so is the unity of God's church, so much so that it said no one thought that anything they had was their own. They would sell their houses, and they would just give it away. 
the unity is increasing. But as I said, the unity is on a razor's edge. They were unified in heart and mind. They were unified in what they devoted themselves to. Acts 2, 42 and 43, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayers, and to fellowshipping together. And they were devoted uh, to, uh, they were unified in what they had. They shared everything. So God has united men and women, poor and rich, young and old, Jew and Gentile. Do you know what that means? He has united gender, class, generations, and ethnicities all into one family. That's who we are, brothers and sisters. Not only in this local church, but in the universal church. From all times and all places, we are one by his love. And like I said, it almost fell apart. It almost fell apart. And how did, how did that happen? So though the word was increasing, the disciples multiplying, there was a problem. There's just three, three points today, and uh, the structure's so easy that any, any of you could have gotten this. In fact, I came up with a structure, then I, I read a commentary, he had the exact same structure as I did, and I thought, okay, well, I, maybe I'm, I got it right. Uh, I, or he got it wrong as well, and we were both in trouble. But, so it's the problem, the solution, the result. Problem, the solution, the result. We're going to hang our, 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 our thoughts on three, these three points. The Holy Spirit's moving, unifying his people, but with sinners coming together, there's always a chance for disunity and fracture. So there was a problem arising. The Holy Spirit was at work, and he, he's always at work, but the results were more visible in the book of Acts, right? He was regularly doing signs and wonders. He's regularly emboldening them to preach. And in Acts 5, 42, just up from Acts 6, the result of their teaching was this increase. The increase of the word resulted in an increase of disciples. Also an increase of problems. So what happened? Well, there was a complaint that arose by some Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected. This was the problem. And this problem is simply an opportunity to God, for God to show his, his uniting love and to strengthen his church, his bride. So the problem arose because Hellenists, they were the Greek-speaking Jews. And the Hebrews were the Aramaic-speaking Jews. And these two culturally different people were in one body. They came together and there was a threat to the unity based on the neglect of the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jewish widows, because of the daily distribution of food. So you notice in verse 1 that the daily distribution of, of food actually is a form of the word deacon. The daily serving of the tables, the deaconing of tables, the, the daily food service, the daily diaconal ministry. That was uh, a great reality. Though. But friends, so the, the problem came as a, as a real problem. But the word complaint suggests that the, that the Hebrew, the, the Hellenists, the, the word that Luke uses here, it, it comes across as grumbling. It comes across as complaining. You, you remember back in, in the book of Exodus that uh, 
when the people complained against Moses, God rebuked them for this. The, the Hellenists and the Hebrews, um, the, the, this word choice suggests that this complaint had to do with assuming the worst about the situation. Uh, these friends, they were not concerned uh, that the apostles were, you know, mishandling the money like Judas or like, like someone who's taking a little from the offering and putting it in their pocket. That, that wasn't it at all. The, the complaint was that the widows were being neglected, that, that the Hellenists were being neglected in favor of the Hebrews. There's a, it's, it's not quite a, a, a racial thing, it's a cultural thing. We're from this culture, you're from that culture. Why are you favoring this culture over that culture? And the perception had a potential to significantly fracture the unity of the church. And we, we don't know exactly how the information got to the apostles, but it, it got to them. And here's what the 12 did. What was their response? Well, notice that they did not deny that there was a problem. They didn't deny the problem existed. Friends, the, the apostles who assumedly were gathering and, and distributing the food, they were busy guys, right? They're preaching the word, the word's increasing, and, 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 and this church is exploding in numbers. They're just not able to do everything that they need to. So it wasn't a mismanagement uh, of funds. It was uh, just a failure because they were not omnipotent. Notice they didn't deny it, and they weren't defensive about it either. These are good leaders. They don't deny that it happened, and they don't say, you guys need to stop complaining. You know, suck it up. They say, they, they go, and they, they are determined instead. They're not de denying it. They're not defensive. They are determined instead to do two things, not to neglect the widows, provide for the widows, and not to neglect prayer and the preaching of the word. They're going to do these two things. They're going to provide for the widows and they're going to devote, devote themselves to the prayer and the preaching of the word. They use strong language. They say, it is not right that we should neglect the prayer and the preaching of the word in order for the widows not to be neglected. So they are not saying that the, the work of feeding the widows is lesser than the work of preaching. They're not saying, pre you know, the preachers are the upstairs and the, and, and, and the deacons are the downstairs. That, that's not what they're saying at all. They're just saying that they have a priority here, that God has given them this calling and this position for this time, and they need to do this. And he's gifted his church to take care of the needs of his church. So this was a philosophy of ministry. They came upon the solution. In order to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace so that the word must increase, they resolved to delegate and to devote. This was the solution in two through six, to delegate. Notice in, in, in Acts chapter six, verse two, they say, you choose. And the 12 summoned the full gathering of the disciples and say, you choose. So this is their solution. They're going to delegate. And their solution first involved gathering the assembly of people together. They, they would gather together for a, a congregational meeting, a, a business meeting, right? Because they knew that having people together was the right thing. There's a problem coming up. We'll form this committee to solve it, and the rest of the congregation doesn't worry about it. That's not what happened. They gathered the full number of disciples and said, let's just talk. 
Let's talk this out. And they were leading, they were, they were coming up with solutions themselves, but they said, here's our solution. Family, it's like this. We needed to do something about the widows. We're not able to continue this ministry that we had before. We're not able to continue this table service because the, the, the demand for preaching is, is, is central for our calling. So in order for for this ministry to continue, for prayer and the service of the word to continue, and for us not to be fractured family, we need for you all to choose out seven men. Brothers and sisters, you choose out seven who would have a good reputation. Notice that what the apostles were calling for was first character. They're going to delegate this service to men and and then later on in the bible women of character so you choose them we will appoint them to ministry the assumption is that the apostles agreed with the the choice they all agreed together and it, and it said that the full number of the congregation was happy about this decision the congregation and the apostles and the or the, you know the first pastors of the church they were wise They chose men of character first. They also chose men that would not be a stumbling block to those who had the complaint. They chose men with Greek names. Uh, As they give the list of names, each one of those is is a Greek name. It's suggesting that these men were at least sympathetic with Greek culture and and involved in it. They they may have been some Hellenists themselves, but no matter, these men were wise to choose from among among those that had been neglected to actually serve the meals. So they delegated the work. They delegated the work. And this is, this is what uh, pastors are meant to do in Ephesians 4, that apostles and pastor teachers and evangelists and shepherds are given to the church to equip the church for the work of the ministry. The apostles are, are setting an example here. There's a principle, um, friends, in this. Every member is a minister. Every member of the body of Christ is a servant of Christ and of one another. They're deacons of the gospel. There's no upstairs or downstairs in the church. There's one family. There's one great family who is united by service. There's, there's no family that says, nah, we don't do service. The, all of the family is devoted to service, like a, you know, like a good family, like a, a mom who, or a dad who teaches their, their kids how to, how to prepare a meal, how to set the table, and how to do the dishes. And each one of the family members has, has a part in that family meal, and each of them contributing joyfully to it makes the family meal happen. So every member a minister, one one family working together to serve the meal. And as that happens, the gospel increases, the gospel advances, the word increases as we each of us take up our post and our our place on the, to change the metaphor, on the battlefront. The, The gospel flag advances as we do our part. Here's what John Stott says. He was the commentator I was talking about earlier. The vital principle is illustrated in this incident which is of urgent importance to the church today. It is that God calls all his people to ministry. 
that he calls different people to different ministries, and that those called to prayer and the ministry of the word must on no account allow themselves to be distracted from their priorities. It is surely deliberate that the work of the 12 and the work of the seven are alike called diakonia. They're alike called deacon ministry. H.B. Charles has said it like this. Pastors serve the church by leading and deacons lead the church by serving. These two offices that he's given the church, the the pastor is to, to, to serve the church by leading and the deacons are to lead by serving. And friends, all of us, so all of us, whether you have the office or not, are deacons of the word, of the gospel in some way as we either preach the word or as we serve the word by serving other people. Friends, service unites God's people and advances his kingdom as the, as the upstairs and downstairs come together through service and love. And I just want to make clear, like, God never, God never had in mind that the pastors were upstairs and the deacons were downstairs. The members were down. That, that was not it at all. He... He is making something totally new, Jew and Gentile together, the upper and the lower classes together. That example breaks down for us. It's not a thing. In in God's family, we're all one. So apostles delegated the social work to others and devoted themselves to prayer and the preaching of the word. Last point. This will be the shortest of them all, I think. Problem. Complaint. A A real problem. Widows be neglected. Solution, delegation, devotion. Result, and the word of God continued to increase. What happens when someone serves the body of Christ? So pastors can preach, so widows can get fed, so people can get clothed. So, so children can be instructed in their children's service or people can be welcomed in the church through hospitality or the church can be cleaned, the, the building can be cleaned. What happens when that service takes place? The word of God continues to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And imagine this a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Friends, the the multiplication of disciples and many priests. We can't control the numbers, but we can pray, preach, and serve. That's what we can do. And there seems to be a connection uh, to our actual preaching the word, praying, and service to whatever increase God wants. We have a role in this, brothers and sisters. Members of you know, the branch, church family, we have a role in this. As we serve one another in love, as we pray and as we preach the word, God is going to add as he sees fit. The rest of the book of Acts is just a, describes how the word advances through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then beyond, even into Rome. God's, Jesus' promise that he will build his church, he's the head of the church, he will build his church, 
and the gates of hell can't prevail against it, that the gospel, that the church is going to advance even into the gates of hell, is being borne out in the book of Acts. I just want to encourage you to read through the book of Acts and, and, and look at all the times. The first summary statement that the, the word increase, that because of what God was doing through the Holy Spirit and his people, is chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. But it goes on, chapter 9, verse 31, as Saul is converted, he begins to preach. Do you know what happens? So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and were being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Another conversion happened in the book of Acts, chapter 12. Cornelius, the first you know, big Gentile convert, and then after the death of Herod in Acts 12, 24, says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts chapter 16, 5, after Paul's first missionary journey in the Jerusalem council that was unifying the church, says this, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased daily. After Paul's time in Ephesus in chapter 19, verse 20 of the book of Acts, when all the residents of Asia, it says, heard the word of the Lord. Here's the summary statement. So the word of the Lord increased and prevailed mightily. And then at the very end of the book of Acts, Paul is, is essentially chained under house arrest, in prison, waiting de awaiting death. Acts chapter 28, verses 33 through 31 says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Friends, the word is on the move. That's, those are the last two verses of the book of Acts. And it's as if God is saying, Neither chains, prison, or death can hinder my word. It's going to continue to go. And even to this day, we see the word increasing as it's preached and as its people serve, as his people serve one another. Friends, even the smallest act of service are more consequential than you know. There's no upstairs or downstairs in the church. In fact, there was only, only one truly great one, who deserves to be served. But as you think about serving the church in whatever role God has for you, I, I think it's, it's tempting to think it's inconsequential or it doesn't matter what you do. But this is the book uh, we're reading with uh, the deacons and potential deacons. It's called How They Served and Strengthened the Church by Matt Smethurst. And it's, it taught in this chapter is the benefits, what deacons provide. And he gives some stories about what happens when people serve the church. Tim Ellis was the quintessential church member and model servant, respected by all. It seemed that he could do anything for anybody. Certainly it seemed like a no-brainer to install him as a deacon. There was just one sticking point. His wife was previously divorced. Even though most would say her divorce was biblical, her previous husband had committed adultery. Nonetheless, a, a cloud hovered over them both as several older members were unwilling to consider him for the office, given their take on husband of one wife. 
Several leaders were frustrated by, his, by this vocal minority, but Tim wasn't. In fact, his attitude was incredible. Essentially, he said to us, it's fine, I understand. Sometimes we need to meet people where they are. I'll just serve like a deacon anyway. You don't have to give me the title. And this was not merely a nice sentiment. Tim served for years without any official title. When he was finally ordained as a deacon, it was a big win for the congregation, not to mention a prime teaching opportunity. Two years later, Tim died in a car accident, leaving behind his wife and two young children. Tim was my neighbor and one of my closest friends. His death and subsequent absence remains one of the hardest things I've ever walked through. What kind of a legacy did the deacon leave? To this day, there is a phrase that floats around our church, the Tim Ellis principle. In other words, serve the Lord in whatever you do, regardless of whether anyone recognizes you. Or to put it another way, live like Tim, the man who deaconed long before his church gave him the title. Friends, this is what God is calling us to. And if you think God is calling us to something that he hasn't done himself, hear these words. Philippians chapter two says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of becoming obedient, to the point of death, even death on the cross. Friends, this is what Jesus did. The, the gospels tell us this is why he came. Mark chapter 10 Verse 45 says, he came not to be served, diakoneo, not to be served, but to serve, diakoneo, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, he displayed this service all through his life all on earth. One example was in John chapter 13 when he, he took off his shirt and he bowed down to his disciples and washed their feet. That, that was the act of the lowest kind of servant. The upper servants, they wouldn't do that, but Jesus bowed down and washed their feet. He served them. And his service was ultimately displayed on the cross when he died for the sins of the world. He was three days in the grave. And on the third, at break of dawn, the Son of Heaven rose again. Oh, trampled death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where's your victory? And as Peter put it, he rose, loosing the very pangs of death. Jesus, the God of the universe, became a servant for you, friend. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you've never believed this stuff before. Maybe this is your first time in a church. I, this is what God is calling you to. To believe this good news. That Jesus came in the world, the king of the universe, 
to serve you. And he's, he's calling you out. He's summoning you. He's actually commanding you to repent of your sin. Repent of a life that has been consumed with yourself and your pleasing your own self and consumerism. And he's saying, turn to him and follow me. Acts chapter 17, verse 30, Paul, Paul says these words as he, as he addresses some people. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So friend, he's, he's calling you now in his kindness to please turn, repent. He's commanding it. He's not just saying please, he's saying do it. And when, he, when you do it, you will see that he has served you so that you might come into this family of love. Friends, I, at the Branch Church, let us love and serve one another. You know, in Downton Abbey, the, the servants, ne- as close as they got to the family, they never became family. They never became, you know, part of the Grantham family, the Crowleys. But in, in the Bible, it tells us that the great family who created everything, God the Father sent his son so that we might be his family. So, so that we might unite service in this family and so that his word might increase and we might invite more people into this family. I want to I give us just a few moments to consider silently how the Lord wants to apply this to our lives. Let, let me just give you a moment to, to think about that and then, and then we'll work through our prayer of confession and assurance of pardon. So take some time and just, just think about how God the Spirit is working in your heart to apply this.